just quickly before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by the Tim and Gens Weekend Podcast. A couple of friends of mine, Tim Warwood and Adam Gendo, who are filmmakers and TV presenters, get together every Monday and tell each other what they got up to over the weekend. It's that simple. It's quite short, as you would imagine, and I'm on board as producer, so I'd really appreciate it if you would seek it out. It's Tim and Gens Weekend Podcast. Gens is G-E-N-D-S. Like and subscribe and help them out. And if you don't already, please follow me on Instagram at Mixtapes with Mike Podcast. I make several posts every day promoting different parts of that week's episode. So if you see something that amuses you, do us a favor and share it to your stories because that will help me reach more people. So cool. On with the episode. Hey, I'm Alex Harry. I'm a singer, songwriter, and musician from Coventry. If you were going to listen to any of my music, I'd say go and have a listen to Brighter Day. It's actually the only original song that I have out right now, so it makes sense for me to push you towards that. Um, it's a really super uplifting song, so maybe it'll help some people out in the crazy world that we're living in right now. I know a lot of people are struggling, so maybe it'll lift people's spirits a touch. I'm Chanel Yates, I'm a singer-songwriter from England and I'd love for you guys to hear my new track, Mama. Welcome to Mixtapes with Mike, the podcast where I invite a guest to make us a mixtape of 10 tracks without using the same artist twice. We're going to talk about each song, and if you like the sound of what you hear, you can listen to the mixtape in full by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. It's that simple. So if you're the kind of person who'd like a new mixtape each Monday, you should probably subscribe to this podcast. But that's enough of the hard sell. Let's talk about music. This week's guest is a Canadian stand-up comedian and actor who was also a writer on The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central. He's also responsible for one of my favourite jokes of all time. This is JJ Whitehead. So, um, I, I, I think, I'm pretty sure that you wrote one of my favourite jokes. Oh, that's nice, yeah. It's basically you talking about, I know what I don't want in my next girlfriend. I don't really trust women anyway, man. I once caught a woman cheating on me in my own apartment. I came home a day early from a tour to surprise her. Found her in bed with somebody else. So surprised myself. And it left me thinking a lot about what I want in my next girlfriend. And to be honest, still not sure what I want in my next girlfriend. But I do know what I don't want in my next girlfriend. And that's other people's cocks. So... (laughs) 
you know what? That's actually, that's not that old at all. That is like 2000. That's when I first started coming over to America. It's funny thing about that one. I got, um, I got uh, censored. Because uh, I, when I came over to America, they didn't want me to say Cox. So there is a version out there from, I'm going to say it's 2015 or 16, where I go, it's the American version. And I'm like, uh, okay, so I had to, I've been thinking a lot about what I want in my next girlfriend uh, after catching her cheating. But I, I don't know what I want yet, but I do know what I don't want in my next girlfriend. And it's Jeff from Accounts. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's what I had to do for America. So are you based in LA now? Yeah. How long have you been out there? I've been here for more than four years. No way. Yeah, I started coming here six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I started coming here six or seven years ago, and like, you know, I was here for probably like half the year. Uh-huh. You know, back and forth. Yeah. And then I finished the whole move like four years ago. Amazing. So, you know, like I was back in Britain last year, but... That's it. That was just for actually. It was four months. I was in Britain last year, so that's that was a good chunk. Yeah, cause you you lived in the UK for a while as well, right? Fifteen years. No way. Yeah, man. Fifteen fucking years of my life. I know more about Britain than than most than British people. What so, especially when you're a comic, you're traveling all over Britain, you know. So. Oh man, I can't fucking wait to actually do jokes in a room with. An, an actual audience. Yeah, it's hard. I did a show to cars the other night. Yeah, there's a couple of those that have popped up just recently. But as soon as the weather turns, I don't see that carrying on. <laughs> Where people are like beeping their horns when to let you know. That- uh, no, we can't have because it's the city of Los Angeles, so we can't have uh, horn beeping. So instead, uh, our audience was given clackers. So what they have to do is. They have to roll down the window, and if you like a joke, you reach out the window with your clackers. You know, like, they go, yeah, they yeah, yeah. Out the so you have to reach out the window and clack to let them know that you're happy. So it's kind of fucked up, because you're on stage, you know, whatever. If you if you ask for laughs, they'll just they'll clack out the window, and and sometimes you, you got to wait for a joke to hit if it's a little... If it's a little layered, so you can be sitting there for a couple of seconds before somebody will reach out their car window. Yeah, gig, gigs seem to be starting to build up steam over here. I've not done any yet. I've got my first one next next week in Liverpool. Right, um, I heard you guys were back. Yeah, but I think it's like reduced numbers. Everyone's like trying to space stuff out, one way systems to try and control the uncontrollable. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get a gig somewhere just to just to get it out of my system and try and find yeah, find man, your flow it, a little bit. It takes longer to get back into the flow than you think than you yeah. even think of. I mean, I keep I was saying this weekend I was uh, when we were at the show, I was talking to Bill Burr actually at the show because he he's been doing them as well. He he made a car leave, which was hilarious because they're all in designated parking spots. So everybody's there. So if you get pissed off, just, just, you know, if ever there's a lesson, just just be pissed off, whatever. Roll up your windows and turn your radio off. And you don't have to hear the comedian anyway. But this one, this one car, I was like, 
doing a three-point turn and yelling out the window, fuck you! And it's just like, oh man, what are you what are you doing? Fucking hell. That's why I'm like I did one one streaming gig because the way it was explained to me, it didn't it sounded like they were actually gonna have an audience there. And it was at right. like a little studio near me and they were recording it for like a like a DVD record for like the main guy um, and there's also going to be like a live stream but for the live stream at least the crew was in there laughing right so yeah it, so it felt like it felt a little bit normal in the that's like, a little bit better but uh, it, it's still still odd still very strange yeah it's not the real deal so I, oh yeah what I was going to say was I was talking to Bill backstage and I was saying the worst death I've ever had um, was it was probably about 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago uh, long enough ago, but I remember it vividly because I, it was my first gig back after taking three weeks off. Right. You know, it was over the Christmas holidays. So let's say it was Christmas like 2007 or eight. And when I was living living in London and I had obviously come home to Canada for Christmas. So early December and uh, like thought nothing, didn't do any gigs all Christmas. And then I got this big leather jacket, this like big swooping leather jacket. I think I thought I was going to be like Bill Hicks or something. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and your arrogance, my arrogance had built up over the three weeks. That, if anything, that's one thing that comedians aren't getting right now. They're not, they have to have humility. They're not, they're not getting cockier <laughs> as time goes on. Whereas when you simply take a little holiday, if you're really hot as a comic, you take a holiday. You can get cocky. So I was getting cocky over Christmas holidays. And then I got this big leather jacket and I came back. My first show was uh, in North London in a place called the Red Rose Inn or something, I think. Red Rose Tavern. or It was up around, it's like Finsbury or something. Anyway, holy cow. I was out of breath. I was... And I'm under, and I'm, and I'm underneath this jacket that I've never worn on stage before. I've never given it a shot, so it's hot as fuck on oh, top. Of me. And I'm out of rhythm. I'm, I'm out of breath because I haven't practiced speaking with a rhythm or with a pace for three yeah. weeks. I'm up there. The flop sweat's coming. The, I can feel it like dripping inside of my jacket. Just a long, lingering death in front of whatever fifty or sixty people. Um, in the kind of close to the village where I'm living in London. So that was a, it was very memorable. So now, and now we're looking at five months off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this, I mean, this is the, this was the first instance in the six years that I've been going that I was glad that I wasn't full time before I'd always wanted to be right. like, like getting rate, enough paid work that I, that was my job. And then yeah. the second all this shit kicked off, I was like, oh man, I'm so glad I've got a day job and that I've got a little bit of money coming in. <laughs> it's quite easy to assume that you're you're a big music fan because of your screen name on social media. <laughs> JJ Whitesnake. I would blame that on my um, my drinking as much as that. You know what? That's That was honestly, it wasn't a calculated name. It was, even when Twitter came along, you know, I stared at it the same way that we stare at all social media, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought, well, it's whatever, this won't last. So I just made it up. I, I thought oh, I'll be JJ Whitesnake on this Twitter thing. Now, only as time has gone on, everybody's on Twitter, including Whitesnake. And so it looks like I premeditatively <laughs> did it just to uh, piss off Whitesnake fans. So not true, but somehow has stuck. And there was no, there was no point in deleting it just to be kind to Whitesnake, is there? So Well, there is it.
Uh, yeah, so it's great. So I do occasionally get, I get well detailed emails sometimes asking me to play because I think they think I'm a member of the band. So. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I get I get White Snake stuff all the time. And then I have to clarify with them, go, ah, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not in White Snake. But uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> I won't, I'm not going to play your daughter's bar mitzah or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So who's your first track by? Uh, we got 21 Pilots. Now, I, I don't know why. I wasn't expecting this kind of the band to be in your list. Yeah, uh, right. Yet alone, sort of kick it off because, like, obviously, like I've 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 seen I've seen your stand up before, and you have this sort of sort of rock. There's a slight rock and roll persona to it, in that kind of a sort of laid back, lackadaisical sort of wor- world traveler kind of vibe. Right. So you You're, assume certain music. Comes well, along yeah, yeah, and there's there's quite a few gigs where you you, you get on stage and you're wearing a band T-shirt. So like, right. yeah, yeah. so and and more often than not, that would be like a like a rock band. So that's and, true. But I mean, as a comedian, you know, I I don't know, or as a music lover who who lived in Britain for so long as well, your tastes can be quite varied. You know, it all depends on the day. I can go anywhere from Enya to Slayer <laughs> on a day, depending on your state of mind. So. You know, it takes a broad taste, but I I like these boys. These are my new, they're my new band, new new discovery, actually. You know, so and they wrote they wrote this track in quarantine, which I just I found it quite inspirational. I had honestly never paid too much attention to them. I was aware of a couple of their tracks, and I always thought, oh, they have some catchy hooks and stuff. And then somehow in March or April, this song caught my caught my ears, and I was just like, I really like it. And then I started. Uh, diving deep into them and listening to their library, and then all of a sudden, you know what? I will wear their T-shirt. <laughs> well, I'll be like a, I, I was aware of some of the the tracks because um, they had a, a track that was like associated with the Suicide Squad movie. Um, yeah, well, see, look, even that track, which is called Heathens, I now know. See, this is amazing for a guy who's only been a fan of this band for like three months or whatever it is now. Uh, it's called Heathens, and I, I saw him talking about it in an interview and his approach to writing the song. Uh, because if you listen back to the lyrics, you know, all my friends are heathens, uh, take it slow and all that. It's it's a friend, because he, 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 he was asked to write a song for the soundtrack, and he and he was trying to dream up how to do it. And he thought instead of writing it from the criminal's point of view, he thought he would write it as a friend who's who's in the gang of criminals, who's taking another friend with him. So he's writing it to warn a friend, like, I'm taking you into this shitty situation with a bunch of heathens. So just take it slow. Don't speak out of turn. Calm down. I was listening to him tell that story. I was like, wow, what a what a great artistic approach to come to a song for a soundtrack. So I imagine a lot of really talented musicians uh, don't leap at any opportunity to write on a soundtrack, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure depending on where they are in their careers, it's either a, a, an amazing opportunity or a massive challenge. Yeah, and I think he didn't see it as a ma- uh, as a huge opportunity. He just saw it as uh, he just saw it as something that could have just been pop fodder, you know, or whatever. And he thought, I'll I'll break out and I'll take a new approach to it. I thought it was really interesting, and that's why I like I like this track that they released in quarantine as well, which was uh, just really impressed me. Okay, so this track is? So this track's, uh, it's Level of Concern. 
And uh, and yeah, that's just it. It's a single. They wrote it in in. Uh, I was gonna say in purgatory. They wrote it in purgatory. I guess that's what we've all been in. They wrote it in quarantine, turned it around, and I just I find it really impressive. I was quite surprised it's, it, that it's not on uh, like in the MTV Music Awards or whatever. But I guess I'm that out of touch. <laughs> So moving on from 21 Pilots, who's your next track by? Moving on, we've got, oh, so this is a British, this is a, this is something that I loved about my move to Britain, because of course I knew about PJ Harvey as an artist before I made the move. You know, I was, I found her really intriguing, I loved her, and it was really unique growing up in Eastern Canada. I actually had a radio show at university, okay. CKDU in Halifax. And I hosted this radio show and I hosted the Radio Numerica countdown and stuff. And I got to play a lot of international acts. So so I so I was actually the first one on the campus like to be introduced to like Chumba Wumba or or PJ Harvey. There was a lot of music coming over from Britain and I played that role. And this was this was uh, a year and a half, two years before I moved to Britain. And uh, so I already loved PJ Harvey, but it was but this blew my mind to now live uh, live in England and, and I, I got to see more of her um, you know I caught her on tour several times I was at her Glastonbury as well I, I performed at Glastonbury the, the year that he, she wore the uh, Spice Girls dress right. so I got to see her so that just became a so that was yeah she's a, she for me uh, epitomizes uh, just great British music she's like it's like if Kate Bush and David Bowie had a had a baby yeah, yeah, like I had David Bowie, like a female David Bowie was in my mind as you were talking like just then because she's kind of gone through these phases of different directions and completely different sounds and she's, she's, she's not tied to one particular sort of sort of direction. Um, she's, cause, and, the, and because of that, sometimes there'll be tracks that don't grab you as much, but when it's good, it's amazing. I think uh, "Stories from the City" and "Stories from the Sea" is uh, is great cover to cover. Like yeah. it's uh, it was one of those albums uh, that I just I can play constantly. I can still do it now. I can still just put it on now and know that's a good hour of an enjoyable hour of uh, of music. Um, yeah, killer. And it, and it and it hasn't aged. It still sounds really fresh. Yeah, it's great. Passionate rock and roll. She just played the Greek theater here in LA as well, which I live. I live right next to the Greek theater, which is kind of. I'm on the edge of the Hollywood Hills, and it's uh, the Hollywood Hills is where the rich people are, and I'm just. I'm just. I'm. I'm at the feet of the rich. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm under the feet of the rich people. They're they're looking. Down Does that say me. something about your economic standing in the world? Uh, yeah, I'm just down here, like, but uh, but I am walking distance to the Greek theater, which is this gorgeous. Um, anybody who wants to look, look look at Los Angeles in a different way, the Greek Theater is amazing, and and uh, the Hollywood Bowl are here, and they're both kind of built into the hillside, right? They're built into yeah, the that's mountain. on the way up to the obs- observatory, right? It is. The observatory is once again uh, right up there with the rich people uh, just looking down on me up there. But uh, yeah, so that's the area that I'm in in LA. It's about like you know, it's about a 10 minute walk to the observatory and about a 20 25 minute walk to the Greek Theater. And uh, yeah, and I saw PJ Harvey there um, like a couple years ago, back when we were allowed to go out into the world. And uh, yeah, she's absolutely amazing there as well. So I've seen her quite a few times. 
Amazing. So this track is? This is Love, which is a gutsy, powerful track that comes towards the end of the album, I think. Okay, so moving on from PJ Harvey, you have picked one of my favorite songs. Uh, who's this by? Oh, ever? Really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's very unique because it's actually kind of rare that, that uh, I speak to another, because everybody would select something else. Uh, it, technically, it's by Queens of the Stone Age, but it's my favorite singer uh, of all time, probably, Mark Lanigan, who I just think has the most amazing voice. He's got a generational voice. And of course, he sang with uh, Queens of the Stone Age. And uh, yeah, this track is on the Rated R uh, album. And uh, yeah, it's a killer. Why? Yeah, why? Why is it your favorite Queens song or your favorite song? Or well, I'm not like I. I love lots of Queens of the Stone Age songs, like. Um, but that one in particular, Mark Lanigan's voice completely sort of transforms it. Um, yeah, and. The, the chords at the beginning, like, I love the, the, the sound of those chords. And then that, and there's that little drone in the background, that real high-pitched drone that just yeah. permeates the whole song. And, yeah. like, um, my, my first experience with Mark Lanigan was uh, listening to a Screaming Trees record. Right, of course, yeah. And it's, I, I, had this, I had this friend at school called David Hunt who would always buy stuff, like, and then... He would sell it off really cheap to finance the next thing that he wants to do. Yeah. So he was a really good source for CDs because when he, as soon as he got bored of it, he probably just yeah. copied it and then sold it. But he would always sell it on for like really, really cheap. So I got the, the Screaming Trees record that had, oh, Halo of Ashes on it. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the, the album now, but I, but I played it to death. Right. Um, so like, and then for him to pop up unexpectedly the first time you listen to that that Queens of Stone Age record, you're just like, oh, yeah. Well, he's one who. So I don't even remember what year this would have been, but he is that artist. So Screaming Trees, like as a '90s, I'm very much a '90s kid. Um, so being a '90s kid, Screaming Trees, of course, yeah, they were in my music album. They never really cracked my favorite artists of the 90s, but I always knew there was something special with this guy's voice. And then Mark Lanigan is that kind of guy that as time went on, he keeps popping up and stuff. He pops up in a track here, pops up in a track there. And every time he does, and every time I heard his voice, uh, I'd always be like, who's that? And then you find out it's Mark Lanigan. And then I started to realize, wow, every time I hear this guy's voice, I, you know, I, it, it, it set something off in my brain, so I better figure out who it is. And then I got into his music, and then I started, like, because he's got such a huge catalog. And then you start looking at all the collaborations he's done. Um, there's, you know, there's great, there's a 4 AD session on YouTube, which is amazing. And so once you discover Mark Lanigan as a, you know, as his own entity, <laughs> you, you'll, you start to open up a whole world of like, wow, this guy, this guy is a killer. You know, amongst musicians, and I feel like I feel like he's a poet as well. You know, his lyrics are amazing. He knows how to convey pain and desire and all that kind of stuff in in his lyrics. It comes through in his voice 
he reminds me a little bit of like Tom Waits. Yeah. Well, I I always I I you know amongst my friends who I try. That's why I'm so impressed that you already rated him huge because I obviously rate him bigger than any, anybody. Like if I say Mark Lanigan around friends, a lot of times it's like really, and then I have to show them. They're like, holy shit! I didn't know this is Mark Lanigan. You know, and so I did used to say he was like our generation's Leonard Cohen, you know, and I know it'll never work, but but yes, Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, these broody poets that lay down passionate, gutsy lyrics that that, that truly emote, you know, to the back of, of great music. Um, yeah, he's one of those. All right, so that's Queens of the Stone Age. Who are we listening to now? Uh, so now, so next up, so this is now I'm bringing you to LA. So I'm uh, not that not that Queens of the Stone Age wasn't American rocky enough, but uh, I, I'm bringing you to LA. This is a band called the Colars. That's with a K, so not the Colors, the Colars, K-O-L-A-R-S, and uh, and I think you'll love to discover them because uh, they're they're a special treat. It's actually a very LA story for me. So this is my He's one of my first friendships I made when I moved to LA. And when you come to LA as a comic or an actor, um, you, uh, you're you gonna do a lot of waiting around. You know, you're, you need auditions or you gotta apply for writing jobs or whatever. Uh, so in the meantime, we need something to keep us sane. So a lot of us will join an acting class, you know, or a writing class, something so that you can feel that you have a goal while you're here and you're not just waiting for somebody to give you an opportunity. Uh, so I joined an acting class and when you do, you see a lot of uh, people who are the same thing. Like there, there'll be people who aren't even in the industry or, you know, like Russian mail order bride uh, was in one of my acting classes one time. She's like, yes, my husband wants me to learn to talk in front of people. So that's that's all she was doing. She was there. So everybody's taking these classes for, for different reasons, you know, 80% because they actually want to be actors. Um, and this guy, Rob Kolar, uh, became friends with me in the acting class. And I remember, you know, so we met first day and uh, and he was telling me, oh, I'm a musician and I'm like, I'm a comedian, you know, and so we're both kind of, you know, trying to size each other up, you know, and then eventually he came to one of my shows. He's like, that's awesome. And then I came to one of his shows and I was blown away. So it's a double act. I don't want to say white stripesy, but that's the quickest way for everybody to uh, get in the realm of what the Colars are yeah, about. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to think of bands to compare it to and like, I. I, I see where a little bit of the white stripes is there because there's a like there's, there's a slightly dirty, dirgy, bluesy sound to some of it. Um, yeah. A little bit Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, maybe, like a little bit of that. Yeah, um, it's got chunky, chunky guitars like that. And... Yeah, like the, the the riffs are quite sort of quite heavy and quite yeah, chunky is probably the right word. Yeah, yeah, man, and uh, and the and the, the cherry on top is that their drummer tap dances, which is amazing. Now that I've seen them live a couple of times, it's quite a sight. Like, I mean, Rob rocks out on guitar and lead vocals, and his wife—I believe it's his wife, might be his girlfriend, girlfriend, wife. I'm gonna say wife. Um, she tap dances and drums at the same time. It's insane. So she's got like the rhythms of two different drummers going at the same time as she stands up there and puts on quite a show. You know, uh, so it's impressive. I've never seen, I had never seen anything like it. And not only that, but I've, I've never seen 
anything that works. So it really works. Like she's she's uh, she's amazing at what she does. I don't know how much of their video you watched that I sent, but if you look up the Kolars, I'm sure there's tons of footage out there now and, and lots of songs to select from where you can see her her talents on the drum kit and him and him as the lead. All right, so this track is? So this track is called Touch the Lightning. So moving on from Kolar's, who's up next? Uh, oh, next. Well, now we're going classic. So we're just going uh, old school. One of my favorite bands, and this is where I become a '90s guy, right? This is a well. This so this this, this is what I was expecting when you agreed to do the podcast. Right. Okay. Like I was expecting this, this, and more of this. Yeah, I was trying to throw you a curveball, though. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be more. I was trying to be more universal, and I thought I'd uh, throw you some curveballs. But yes, we're going. This is this is number one. This is this would be the band that is the first on my mind if I just want to listen to music in any mood, you know, in any and all moods. Um, you know, they're the greatest. The, so this is Allison Chains. The, the greatest harmony I've ever heard in music, you know, is between Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell. Uh, just crushed it. I think Jerry Cantrell's even done well now with his new, with the, the new partner that he's recruited to have the same kind of sound. But uh, Alice in Chains, man, they're uh, they're the shit. This is the they're the best <laughs> the best '90s band. Lane Staley gone way too soon. And yeah, I get it. I get how you wanted me to fill all ten with, uh, and I mean we could have basically. But I thought you know I thought there's, always, there's always an opportunity to do like a side B at some point. But um, yeah, I thought you know what? I know I have the haircut, and and I've obviously got the Adidas. I've even got the Adidas. Look at this! Like I couldn't look more fucking '90s uh, if I tried. That curtain's probably from three decades ago, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah. So this is a general. Oh look! I've even got a grunge. I've even got a grungy shirt hanging off my chair. So I can't escape it, man. So did you ever see him live? Alice Chains, yes. I even saw them uh, recently. I saw them last year. They played here. I saw the new, like the new uh, version, and that's. And I was just so happy because I've never seen Jerry Cantrell. Ha I've always seen him happy, actually, but he looks really happy. He looked really happy on stage, and I just remember watching last year. Um, you know, because when you talk to other '90s kids, they're like, "It shouldn't have changed." Alice in Chains died with Lane when Lane Staley died, or whatever, whatever those arguments and debates are. And then I'm like, These Jerry Cantrell was very." Was the was a very important part as well, you know, and the fact that he's up there um, uh, playing and looking happy is—I uh, couldn't be happier for him, you know. Yeah, because were, like you can imagine, some guys from that era, if they're still playing, they they could potentially just be going through the motions and playing the hits just to take the check. But if he's actually up there and he looks like he's enjoying it, I think that makes for a way better show. Yeah. Oh, entirely, entirely, man. Um, Yep. What's, your, what's, your, what's your favorite music venue in LA? Um, well, I mean, I always do say the Greek, like I already, already mentioned, because it's pretty fantastic. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, different venues for different situations. 
but the outdoor venues are a treat. So anytime, anytime you can be Hollywood Bowl or Greek theater, or, you know, you'll stumble on all kinds of other little outdoor venues around greater Los Angeles as well. And they're all just, just amazing. And to be able to watch music outdoors, as I'm sure you understand, uh, it just doesn't happen very much in England. We've got great, these great venues in England. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, every, like, you know, just, well, yeah, to name a few, like there's Hammersmith Apollo. There's, you know, the, I saw some, some, my three favorite concerts were at the Manchester Apollo my, of all time, you know, my three, Three, three favorite live concerts were probably Beck, uh, Nine Inch Nails, and uh, Queens of the Stone Age. And they were all at the Manchester Apollo, and they were all in the 2004 to 2008 era, or whatever. But uh, those were my three favorite shows I've ever seen. But uh, but it's the outdoor thing. I'd never even, it didn't even dawn, you know what? I lived in Britain for so long, it didn't even dawn on me uh, that these outdoor venues really existed. You know, it was like a figment of my imagination. And now that I'm here and I've experienced it, I was like, holy shit, you know. So there's certain things that you don't get uh, as much. You get an outdoor venue when you get a Glastonbury, you know, or a Leeds, Leeds Reading, Glastonbury. But that's a different experience to like, say a Greek theater, um, you know, up like whatever it's called in the uh, stadium kind of uh, seating. Yeah, and, and like stadium gigs in the UK, like it's not like, it's it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. It's not like yeah, an outdoor I mean, gig to... with a reasonable amount of people. It's an outdoor gig that's fucking massive. So there's no in between. Yeah. yeah, I went to Wembley last year for the Who. Um, Eddie Vedder opened for the Who at Wembley. Um, who else was on the? I, I who's oh, shoot Kaiser Chiefs. Kaiser Chiefs. Eddie Eddie Vedder with like a string quartet as backup was pretty cool and then the who um closing it in wembley last year so yes i understand that and it technically it's outdoors because the roof was open. yeah but but only just yeah so i mean the greek theater is only like a three thousand seater but it is you can watch the sun go down while listening to you know your favorite uh, artist it's pretty yeah pretty amazing i mean i didn't even know who damien rice was uh, I kind of knew who he was, but he played the Greek theater. I took a date there, and uh, and uh, it was a it, I was a I was a good I was a good date for the night for just having the sun was going down. Damien Rice was up there playing. I didn't even know the guy was funny. The guy is funny and clever, and he plays music music that uh, I had an American girl go, "Oh my God, what are you introducing me to?" So I was like, "All right, good job, Damien Rice. You're on my radar now." All right, so I like those. I like those venues. They're a bit of a treat. So, what is it about this Alice in Chains song? This is my favorite. This was my of the of the library. This is when you're already it's whatever 1994 and whatever, and you're a kid and you're already a fan. Maybe it was 96 or something. Anyway, it's right in those formative years for me. Anyway, um, and. Uh, this was that song, it's not on their debut album, this is that song that comes along when you've already decided you're a fan of a band, and then they slap you with this. And this was an EP in between songs, and it just it kind of blew my mind and was on repeat in my in my Discman, <laughs> I would say, for, for, uh, for a long time, so. So this song is? Uh, this song is No Excuses.
So, following on from Alice in Chains, who are we listening to now? Okay, all right. Chris Cornell, the big guns. Um, so now we're still in the we're still in the '90s era. So I'm not I'm not letting you down. Um, so yeah, this is Chris Cornell, the best voice, the best voice in rock and roll. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know what else I could do to describe Chris Cornell, but uh, what a rock star uh, this guy was. Uh, you know, once again gone, gone too soon. Um, he's even gone too late to be too soon. Actually, he, he's unfortunately he left us um, recently, and uh, that was one of those ones where I didn't realize how much it would it would sort of affect me when when he went like. I didn't realize how gutted I would be until it happened. Yeah. I mean, their whole... I mean, this uh, the, uh, music. Music takes victims as it tears through people. But you think a lot of times, you think that the, the, the artists who are going to die, who we lose to suicide or to, to depression and stuff, I don't know, sometimes I arrogantly think they're all gone before the age of 35. Like, that's when those artists or you know or the drug addictions and stuff they're gonna they take hold of you of course we hear about the 27 the 27 curse so many of them died at 27. i think there's another one at 32 there's a bunch of 32 year olds musicians great musicians who died and then i don't know sometimes you arrogantly think all right if he's made it into his 40s it's, it's gonna be okay you know and then the crushing reality is yeah we still start to lose people that we love to uh, you know, the various—I mean, who knows what the truth is? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they try to say it's in, uh, drug addiction. Sometimes it's depression, and uh, it's all—it's uh, all a bit sad. But uh, this vo- this guy's voice, um, this guy's voice is killer. And once again, it's another great. I lived in Britain for so long, but I saw him in the Round at Cam in Camden. Oh no! In the Roundhouse Theater in Camden. He played in the round, and he played, and it was his like kind of acoustic, like when he was singing Billy Jean and stuff like that. And I just, I'll never forget this performance. Yeah, that was like, was that was that the Euphoria Morning album that he was touring? Uh, no, I think it was like a special. It was like a double album where he did a bunch of covers. Oh, amazing! Because uh, Euphoria Morning doesn't have Billy Jean on it. I don't right. think. The, it's like, and I think he purposely toured. Uh, a bunch of little in-the-round venues and stuff, and it was like heavily acoustic. So that era, I, I remember. I remember the weekend really well because I had actually, uh, I went to the Roundhouse twice in that weekend, and it was to see Chris Cornell. Uh, luckily, he was the second one, and then the, the first was to see uh, uh, Michael, uh, the the politician, the guy who wears the hat, uh, bowling for Columbine, and uh, Michael Moore. Michael Moore, that's it. I went and saw Michael Moore do a do do a big talk, you know, presentation. He was kind of being like a performer, spoken word guy. I saw him on the Thursday uh, do his spoken word thing in the Camden uh, Roundhouse, and then I came back on like Saturday night to cleanse my palate and listen to some Chris Cornell. It was pretty, uh, it was quite the contrast. Yeah, I I never saw him play solo, and I never saw him with Soundgarden, but I saw him a couple of times with Audio Slave. Right, yeah. And that was also amazing, so. Yeah, he's he's pretty amazing. His voice is just passionate. He's got another one of those voices that just reaches into your ribcage and grabs your soul. Yeah. You know, 
I have to let you do it. I saw him just before he passed away. Actually, I saw him on the on the uh, uh, the last tour he did here in LA. He played the LA Forum with uh, uh, Mother Love Bone when they did that little reunion. Oh no way! So they had a Mother Love Bone reunion uh, show, and then he passed away a couple months later. You know, but uh, and that was very cool to watch to see Mother Love Bone here. So. Well- so what is it about this track from Chris Cornell? Well, this track, so this track's called Sun Shower, and I'm pretty sure it's a, it's it's rare in the sense, not not rare in the sense that it doesn't exist, but it's rare in the sense that it's harder to find. It's not a main release of his at all. Not on Euphoria Morning, I don't believe, unless you maybe get an expansion um, pack or something for it. Not on that other acoustic kind of presentation I was talking about where he does Billy Jean and all that kind of stuff. This exists on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. And it is such a treat. And it actually came into my life at a time before I started comedy because like I said, I ran this, I had this radio uh, job, campus radio in Canada at university. And the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack uh, cracked into our, our countdown. And this track came to me. And up until this point, I only knew him as like a Soundgarden, Bad yeah. Motor Figure, uh, Break My Rusty Cage. Like I knew him as the most uh, screaming, passionate singer of, of the ones I loved, you know? So at this point, I had this lovely little collection of like, of like my musicians who, who speak to me. So I had my Eddie Vedders and my Kurt Cobain's and, you know, and my Lane Staley's. Uh, and then uh, and to me, uh, Chris Cornell was one of those periphery ones of like, oh yeah, I really like Soundgarden, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna hold a candle to Lane Staley or Eddie Vedder. And, and then all of a sudden I hear Euphoria, more, I hear, sorry, Sun Shower. And I was like, holy shit, this guy might be one of my favorites. You know, and it just kind of breaks up. Cause it's, it's another one of those songs that is, uh, I don't know, you're, you're a musician, so there might be a word for this, but the tempo changes several yeah. times in the song and it's got so it's got soft melodies and then it's got high passionate uh this high kind of screaming <laughs> great passion screaming vocals that only chris cornell can do Following up from Chris Cornell, who's up next? Who do we got? Oh well, we got the Kings. So here's the Kings. This is a this is a Faith No More. Uh, the Kings of the Kings of metal, you know, metal rock music. The, the the Kings of blending everything. This is the they're the kind of Mike Patton, uh, who's another one of my favorite singers. Um, he. Uh, He's got that talent for singing multi-genres. He, he actually, when you first hear him when you were younger, you almost think, oh, he's too hard. They're too hard to be, like, in the, to be lumped in the, in the uh, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana kind of bubble. They're like, who is this hardcore? They almost bridge that gap. You know, it goes, it goes Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, then it, then it would go Soundgarden. And then you get Faith No More, and you're like, holy cow, this is some gutsy 
uh, rock and roll, and you know, and they flip back uh, between all genres. Yeah. They're gonna put heavy mix of music at you. If you like, like, you know, they're they're like, uh, <laughs> uh, or let's say Red Hot Chili Peppers is Faith No More for pussies. <laughs> 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 let's, let's, let's put it that way. Let's stay in the war and blend in everything, and then Chili's supposed to come along and go, oh, this is good. Look at the way they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Put it all together, and uh, that's what that's what Mike Patton is. Man, that, guy, that guy's got balls. I've seen him a few times. I had the pleasure, when I lived in London, uh, me and another uh, comic who lived there at the time, Ben Hurley, he and I, uh, we did a tour together. In England, and as a treat, we went and saw Faith No More in Frankfurt. Uh, the day after we wrapped our tour, we found out where Faith No More they were in Frankfurt. We flew over, watched them play in Frankfurt, which was an absolute treat. Uh, you know, and since then, of course, they live in Los Angeles. So I've seen them perform with Tomahawk here in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, overall, what a what a killer band Faith No More was. They'll uh, they'll snap. They'll get you pumped up. Yeah. So like I. Like I knew, I knew tracks. I never listened to like a whole album, uh, and then I heard uh, "Digging a Grave," which was one of the later songs, um, and yeah. that was such a departure from what I'd experienced with them before. I was just like, "Holy shit!" But it was really good. Is "Digging a Grave" on uh, album of the year? Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. I remember, like, I, I remember the. The cover of the single, it was like a, it was like a black and blue picture of like a rabid like wolf or a dog type thing. But what Faith No More track have you picked? So we've picked uh, One Small Victory, which is off of Angel Dust, which is my favorite album uh, by them. Um, and uh, this is another one of those songs that kind of revs up really good at the beginning, you know, and it's got great lyrics about tearing down the system and stuff like all these kind of things that i i'm gonna say i was 16 or 17 you know maybe maybe 18 probably just wrapping up high school and, and we're like angry at the world or whatever trying to figure out what i'm gonna do and then these guys come along and they just become part of the soundtrack to your life it, it's uh you know not that you need a uh you know protest songs or anything like that but they were right up there with like raging Against machines so they just made you um, it made you look at look heavy at their lyrics and and I don't know think think a lot about being passionate about things you know about maybe not necessarily all social causes but maybe certain ones just standing up for yourself you know. Okay, so who are we listening to now? So this is a little uh, uh, naked and famous, um, which is which I know very little about, and of course this is going to be a departure too. Now you're about to say to me, why? Why have you taken such a right turn? We were we were deep in we were deep in '90s rock and roll territory, uh, but I think that this song I, I haven't been able to get it out of my head since it was introduced to me many years ago. Um, I was on tour 
was actually on tour in New Zealand, which I I feel I'm sure that's where they're from. I think pretty sure. I was on tour in New Zealand, and uh, this song just blew my mind when I first heard it. It's just so catchy. Uh, that little hook will stay in your head forever. And while I was on tour, it became kind of the soundtrack to our tour. We were playing it. We were playing them pre-gig. Uh, play them as intro music. Play them as outro music. And this song weighed heavily on that decision and. Long since I left my New Zealand tour, um, they joined my uh, music library, and I still, still consider it a go-to track for uh, from lots of situations. You know, if you need to get pumped up, even when I'm working out, it works. Um, it's good. It's a uh, they were they were impressive, and it was and it's kind of a new genre to me as well, being the the rock kit that I was. And then I hear this kind of fusion of multiple. You know, it's yeah, very- it's, it's it's really catchy, and I, I and it's absolutely in, infectious, like you say. It's one of those things that, for, for better or for worse, once it gets in your head, it's yeah. it's there for for the foreseeable until you get some other earworm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can hear it. You can hear it in your head long after it's long. Okay, so this track is. So this track is uh, hearts like ours. this list together on my Apple Music to make my playlist, I found two different versions of this track. So right. It's, they're, they're, they're both fairly similar, but one was... Um, so I put, I put both on my playlist, but... Um, I, there's, is it a more acoustic version that you're, that you're thinking of? And it still kicks in? Yeah, maybe slightly more acoustic, but it still has like a definite drop. Right. Um, yeah, because I'm pretty sure it was an album release. Um, maybe off her second album. Um, I would have to look it up myself. But uh, yeah, it's a great song. The normal version on Oyster is is great. That's the funny thing about uh, about Heather Nova is that she does have a few different versions of stuff. And also, I didn't realize like growing up in Canada. Um, I was introduced to her definitely in Canada, but I didn't realize she didn't take off in America at all. Um, I wasn't aware because I, I moved to Britain and I got to see uh, Heather Nova perform several times in Britain. I saw her at the Liquid Rooms in Edinburgh um, and she just blew me away. Uh, her voice is amazing. Her voice sounds so clean. I, I can't believe it. I've never heard... I, without effects or anything, I've never heard somebody with a clean singing voice. It's, it was amazing, and her concerts uh, blew me away because there was no, there's no rough edges. There's no rough edges to to her music, which is really weird when it's so it's kind of gritty rock, but with no no rough edges. Um, so she blew me away as I as I got to see her a few times in my life in Britain, and now having moved here, I casually said 
to somebody at the show we were doing the other night. There's Josh Adam Myers, who, who is a great comedian. He has a podcast called The 500, where he counts down the 500 albums of all times. So he is a music authority, I would say. And I was asking him at the gig, I was like, have you heard of Heather Nova? And he's like, no, who's Heather Nova? And I was like, holy shit. Heather Nova is a phenomenon that didn't come to America, which happens. You know, you stumble onto artists like that in Britain who have bigger careers in Britain than they do yeah. than they do in America. It happens all the time. It happened with, I saw, I, I witnessed it happen with, uh, with, uh, who are the Scooby Snacks guys, you know? Oh, Fun Loving uh, Criminals. Fun Loving Criminals, way bigger and broke bigger in Britain than they, than, you know, they had a hit, of course, in America and stuff. Um, Scissor Sisters. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe the Kings of Leon even broke in America for like, there's lots of, America is a good route to uh, to getting it. I mean, you know, there's there's several on the list and I didn't realize that Heather Nova is, uh, is one of them. She made it in Canada and I knew about her and then I just assumed. I assumed the world had embraced the Heather Nova. So you can imagine my surprise when I was saying to my American friends and they don't have a clue who she is. Well, she was I, new to me when you sent me the, the playlist and the, the, the tune's great because and it almost it almost takes you by surprise because the riffs don't come in until about two minutes in. Yeah. Like, you think this is this, uh, this acoustic track and she, her voice is beautiful and then like out of nowhere this riff kicks in and it's like oh this yeah. is a rock song yeah oh yeah totally exactly and uh yeah and so i i love it for that and, uh, yeah seeing her live was great she did this thing when i when i saw her live because she's got such great control of her voice i'll never forget it i mean she does it every time she performs live but she'll start singing uh, those long, you know, melodious, uh, you know, like they're not even words, just making whatever sound. I don't know what, what you want to call it. Um, she's singing and uh, and she'll step away from the mic and she'll keep taking a, a step back every, like every line or verse or whatever. It's pretty, it was pretty amazing that her voice just carries through the whole building. Um, so yeah, amazing musician. Hugely underrated, I would say, and I didn't even realize. It's, all, it's nice when you find out, like, oh right, this is a, I'm in the minority here. Like, if even you said that, oh, I didn't know who she was. Now, uh, yeah, now I'm glad that more more people do. I'm gonna fight my little fight. You know what? I you know what I actually did uh, the other night when I found out that Heather Nova wasn't a hugely uh, known artist in America. I ordered, I came home and I ordered a couple of shirts. So. So there you go. So you're saying how I'm a comedian who always wears like can wear rock band shirts and stuff on stage. Well, Heather Nova is coming into the rotation because you know I want to do some shows and I want to have Americans in the audience going, "Who's this chick? Who's, who's the chick on his shirt?" All right. So, so this track is this track is uh, it's Sugar, and uh, and yes, and it's not acoustic, but just yeah, let it sink in. That's what maybe a listener should know like don't just listen to the first 30 seconds and go that's it you got to listen to this it's a full encompassing story you know this song and it's uh, got a huge passionate release right in the middle of it so if you like that that era you know she's the precursor to like a, a Alanis Morissette or a she's actually one of the co-founders of Lilith Fair with Sarah McLaughlin in Canada so oh, right, I mean, okay yeah so to me she was huge because I'm from Nova Scotia Sarah McLaughlin is from Nova Scotia, Lilith Fair and everything. So I was acutely aware of Lilith Fair, as I'm sure people must be. It's a huge piece of musical history. It was an all-female 
uh, festival. Um, and Heather Nova was at the top, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be guessing, but I'd say uh, Lilith Fair started like 96, 97. I don't know, it might've been, but at some point in the nineties anyway, which was this big female musical revolution. And uh, to me, Heather Nova was a huge part. Moving on from Heather Nova, we find ourselves at your last track. Yeah. Who are we listening to now? I'm still going to go bonus track. I do have a bonus treat for everybody. But, uh, well, this is a hard decision. So, because, because I didn't know how you would <laughs> approach this. Because, like you said, uh, you had expectations from me. And like, <laughs> and, like I said, I wanted to surprise you. And then, so for that reason, this band wasn't in the top 10 before it wasn't in the 10 of these songs because I thought it's too easy for you to call I mean you can even look at the poster behind me here which is uh, Eddie Vedder uh, it's Eddie Vedder live in I think Hawaii uh, on the shows he did in Hawaii and uh, so yes I put them in in the end I, I thought about a lot of other you know little sneaky treats of musicians but I've introduced you to enough might as well go with the classic which is uh, Pearl Jam which changed my musical uh, opinion, my musical direction. Um, like I said, not a musician, but they came along in my life, you know, in my very formative years. So yes, I am a, I am a hardcore '90s rock kid. I still love all that music. I still haven't had my hair cut, and, uh, <laughs> and it's all Eddie better and Pearl Jam's fault. <laughs> I th I think Pearl Jam are one of those bands that like. They're completely uncompromising in that they haven't really wavered or like sold out in any way. They've kind of stayed true to making things on their terms. Yeah, they definitely true. But I feel that that's what the '90s is kind of about. That's another thing too. Like I sometimes history is getting rewritten, but but uh, '90s bands was all about the fans. You know, I I feel like. Some people try to paint a different story to me, like, I, and people seem to be changing history sometimes. Like when I get told, it kind of, it gets into my skin sometimes when I get told that uh, '90s music was macho, was all was was all manly and it was demeaning to women and all this kind of stuff. Because you get told that sometimes, right? Because you get the that that Eddie Vedder the like this this manly deep voice that that people like to think that all any '90s band would sing, you know, they'll sum up all these musicians like that. They sum up the Mark Lanigan's, uh, Eddie Vedder's, just they're all this, this, this type of singing. Um, and to me, it wasn't that at all. As, as you know, anybody who was there, uh, 90s music, 90s rock and roll was very much a rebellion to 80s rock and roll. Yeah. And the 80s rock and roll was the misogynistic, oppressive to women. It was like men in tights singing songs about using women and even like using women in their videos. Like there was there was a level of uh, misogyny and lack of respect for, for the opposite sex. That was an 80s style. And the 90s came along and stopped it all. The 90s, the, the yeah, male I, music, the 90s feel... came up, we, they put on 
they put on plaid and they went, it's going to be about the music and we're going to appreciate women, you know, and they forward all these great female artists like Alanis and like Heather Nova and uh, Slater Kinney. And so for me, it was a very different thing. It drives me nuts when I hear somebody try to go, oh yeah, the macho music of the 90s. Like that's not what yeah, they Yeah, like I, I think some of that scene kind of bled into like early 90s. Like I wish, I wish I... I wish I'd have been maybe a little bit older when all that stuff hit, just to see. I would love to see the look of realization on those guys' faces when when they when they realized that their time was kind of running out because this new wave of music that had probably a little bit more substance to it in terms of content. Well, well I had uh, another uh, friend of mine was pointing out a very funny point now because it's happening with comedians sometimes. There's an evolution in comedy. I mean, we'll have to see how it lasts, but there's. Comedians were getting a little bit afraid sometimes to say things that are taboo, and that used to be what we were counted on to do. We used to be relied on, you know, saying things that are taboo, you know, holding truth to power. And now it gets, we're in an era right now where comedians are a little bit second-guessing themselves. We're, we're in this place of like, what if my audience doesn't have fun because I overstepped the line or something, which is hard. And a, and a buddy of mine, I'm writing, a writer friend of mine from the Jim Jeffrey show. Um, he doesn't perform live, but he's written for Chappelle, and he's written and he, he wrote with me for years. And he cracked me up because he said David Lee Roth, famously at the on the cusp of the night of the new '90s musicians. So David Lee Roth, and of course Van Halen, who very much represents the Motley Crue, uh, Bon Jovi, the womanizing kind of spandexy era. Um, was talking about the move into these new musicians who came along, like the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas. And, and, he, and David Lee Roth said, music's just not fun anymore. I didn't know it was going to be not fun all of a sudden. And, I, and he was like, holy shit, that's how comedians felt as well. Like comedy, if it wasn't, that it's not kind of becoming safer or going in a different direction, it's not fun anymore. And I wonder if that happens to all artists. I wonder if artists are just like, when they're in their era, this is so much fun. And then when that era ends and the public wants something else, I wonder if it's less, uh, I'm just losing the passionate for it, or it's more, oh, this isn't fun. This isn't the fun we were having two years ago. I didn't see this disappearing. Yeah, I like, I don't know. I definitely see, I see pockets of that here. I think from what I hear, you get a little bit more woke sensitivity in in and around London, and then, right. but then your your typical northern cities are, are still sort of fuck it. If it's funny, it's funny. Um, well, I hope it, I hope it returns. I mean, I keep I say it here as well. I mean, it is it's a hard thing. You can feel it in an audience. I mean, I don't. We haven't got to perform live for a while now, but you can feel the. It's like a lack of trust. Um, and audiences need to trust the comedian on stage, and they have. They've trusted comedians for years and years and years, but there's a weird vibe in the audience now in the last two years that, they, that the, new, the new audience, the new, I don't, I don't like to label them as millennial or whatever, but the, the new sensitive audience, they can turn on you. They're not, they're not there giving you their trust and going, okay, let's go on these adventures, let's you know, talk about some taboo subjects or something. Sometimes you can sense that they're sitting there going, I don't really trust where you're going to go with this and that's a they, hard... they, they, they don't have the patience to see where it goes because quite yeah. often you're setting up an expectation that you're saying something inappropriate but you may well resolve it in a punchline that is actually 
culturally on point, but they, yeah. they don't want to give you that chance. No, exactly. They're not. It's it's uh, too far into their comfort zone too quickly, and uh, so they don't hang with you. But you know, hopefully, hopefully this is just a state of flux. You know, we're we're evolving, and the audiences will come back and understand the process and that people are going to take risks. You know, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, that's why that's that's kind of the part of why people are taking phones out of audiences' hands and stuff now, so it's a different kind of evolution. Um, you know, if you, know, if you want me to bring it back to Pearl Jam, <laughs> who's playing, that's what they did for music, though. They they made it evolve so much to me. I mean, I got to admit, I, the Nirvana, it Smells Like Teen Spirit was the, was the track for me that started it all, but but uh, but when, then when I heard started hearing Pearl Jam a week or two later, uh, those both both those albums didn't leave my my uh, Walkman Discman whatever. Both those two albums, uh, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, was just like, and it was cover to cover. It was like holy holy shit. And then from that, then you're then then one of your buddies who's slightly older than you, they'll introduce you to Popper Metallica. Then they'll, they'll take you back into the '80s when you were like, I thought '80s was just spandex and uh, talking about using women and stuff and uh, doing drugs and partying. And they're like, no, no, no! Listen to listen to this Metallica. And you're like, holy shit! There was other things happening in the '80s as well. So uh, yeah, Pearl Jam just came along in the '90s, right at the right time for me. My father was at war. My father was in the Gulf War, uh, so I was an angry kid. And I was an angry kid. I probably didn't associate with the party music of the '80s, even though I loved them. Even though uh, Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and all them, they were in my music library just as much as uh, as Public Enemy. Uh, you know, Public Enemy and uh, Boogie Down Productions. Uh, they were in my, like, I was just living that kind of uh, learning about the world or, you know, becoming, uh, I, I was a, more, more a pre, not a preteen, but an early teen, you know. And then Pearl Jam and Nirvana came along and I was getting my driver's license and I was like, this is my music. This is my, this is where I'm at. Everything seemed to gel. You know, I what, get it. What, I get what a time to latch onto those two bands when you're just because that's such that's such a sort of um, a, a moment of independence when you can take your place, you can take yourself wherever you want to go when you want, and you're not bound by public transport or, or like your parents dropping you off at places. Like you can go wherever, and to embrace that music at the same time that you get that freedom, what a moment! Yeah, when you're a Generation X kid. Generation X kids, man, we, we knew that we wanted to, we were angry and we needed to stand up for something because, I mean, we were literally smothered by baby boomers. It's hard to explain this to the, to the current generation because I think the current generation can, can handle the baby boomers. There's just as many of them. So for Generation kid, Generation X kids, we were very a small pocket. We were, were outnumbered. We were outnumbered by either generation on either side of us. And we just thought, you know, baby boomers weren't leaving their jobs or anything like that. We're just going like, what, what is, what is there for us? Where is there for us? And I, I bet you a lot of Generation X kids still feel that way, because even though they fought a lot to, to break off a chunk of what the baby boomers have, well, then the millennials came along and they, they're more computer efficient, more savvy. They've grown up with that generation. So the Generation X is still living here, living in the middle. Uh, you know, and they were angry and they needed music to represent that. This anger and this wanting to break out and wanting to have their thing. Um, so that came along for us. 
when we were like, give us a little peace, baby boomers, and uh, you know, and let's lay the groundwork so the millennials can mow us over <laughs> in, in 15 years. What Pearl Jam track is playing us out then? So I've selected Animal off of their second album, Verses, which is the, the most thunderous album I think that they ever uh, released. I love Animal. I love working out to this album as well. Um, cover to cover, even, even the slower tracks, uh, they come at a time in a workout that's a good cool down period. You know, I think Elderly Woman or Don't Call Me Daughter or whatever, that'll come in at like the 22 minute mark. So just when you've had a good, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my, it's my workout album. So, uh, and I love it. I love the animal track. It's a, it's a killer. So for the benefit of the listener, if anyone wants to find you and, and learn more about what you do, what's the best place to find you? Uh, well, I guess on the interwebs. Um, so uh, I'm JJ Whitesnake, as we already covered. I'm JJ Whitesnake on Twitter and, uh, and Instagram. And I mean, that's, you know, that's the best place. Do you ever get a different answer when you ask that? Is there anybody who's ever said the best place place to get a hold of me is uh, pick up the penny saver on Saturdays. I get the I get the back cover. So you'll see my that's the good way to contact me. You ever you ever get an answer that blows your mind? It's it's they're generally pointing to one of the social medias or maybe if they're a bit more established their website. But um, yeah. generally it's it's the, whatever their preferred social media. I've got a website as well, but I look at my I don't know who does it? Who it takes, it takes, a, it takes enough to keep up your, this is very Generation X of me as well, I'm not, but it takes enough to keep up your Twitter and your Instagram and stuff. I rarely look at my website, but yes, that does exist as well. The best thing you can ask in the year 2020 is that people just remember your name, isn't it? <laughs> Plug my name into the Google box and hopefully you'll find something you like. And if you, if you do JJ White Snake instead of JJ Whitehead, you may get redirected to Whitehead. Well, look, man, thank you very much for coming on. I really enjoyed the chat. All right, buddy. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It was a, it was a nice escape, nice break from all this doing nothing that we're doing right now. So cheers, man. And then the music will fade up and the outro will play and... Oh wait! I didn't get to tell you the bonus track. Oh right, okay. So like, hold on. There's a you're <laughs> sniggering to yourself because you have a bonus track. <laughs> yeah, are we returning to the record now? Yeah, that's it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I threw in a bonus track. I thought I thought you would enjoy it. So you finally just got to see it, didn't you? Yeah, today. Right. Yeah, I don't know if you want to throw up a link or anything, but I had to give a shout out. Um, and this is a. This is a well worth it bonus track. Uh, when I said that my musical tastes on any given day, depending on my mood, they can fluctuate from Enya to Slayer. I, I wasn't kidding. And we had the pleasure on the Jim Jeffries show of getting Carrie King from Slayer 
to come down to the show. And I'm extra proud of this bit because I, I wrote it. We were doing a piece. I'm sure if you remember the rise of the incels. So, so there's been a, a rise of, of a lot of these men who are just in their basements making, oh my God, it's us. Uh, no, so, so anyway, there's, there's this rise of, rise of men all over the world just in their, in their mother's basements. Stuff. They're called incels, you know, and they're in there just complaining. We're, I guess we're incel adjacent. So, <laughs> anyway, anyway, we're not man. sat in a basement complaining. We're sat in our basement celebrating things. Yes, we're, we're celebrating. We're, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm sure people know what an incel is anyway. But uh, we did a show based around how uh, men need to learn a skill or something if they want to attract the opposite sex instead of just complaining. Complaining doesn't get you anywhere. Just going on the internet going, women don't love me. Meh, meh. You know, it doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, so I managed to get Carrie King uh, uh, to play... I guess Jim basically goes, you know, if you guys want to attract women, look, look at this guy. And he points to Carrie King, uh, who looks like Carrie King. It's Carrie King from Slayer. And then Carrie King throws down a great little riff. Uh, and at the end, he looks dead into the camera and goes. I've had sex. And I think it's so much fun and it's such a treat to see the legendary Carrie King play along with us in a little sketch. I, I, I had to show it to you and I wanted to throw it in as a special bonus track. I'm sure you can get the link there. I mean, it's 13 seconds of joy. I'll be sure to fade that in. Yeah, awesome, man. I've had sex. <laughs> I haven't had sex. I have. I don't know how you're doing, but I, I can't. <laughs> I have, I, you know what? I make, I just made fun of incels for a couple seconds, but I, I'm probably dead close to one because uh, I have, uh, I haven't met a human woman uh, other than one other comedian. I met, I met one new human woman this year. So, 2020. So that concludes this week's episode. We've deliberately kept the music played below the conversation because we believe that all musicians should be paid something for what they do. So if you'd like to listen to the mixtape in full, you can find it on Apple Music or Spotify by clicking the links in the show notes of this episode. Or you can find and follow the Facebook page Mixtapes with Mike and I'll share those links on the post that announces this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media with anyone you think would enjoy it. It would mean even more if you would leave us a positive review on iTunes as that will help us reach a larger audience. But in the meantime, I'll see you next week for another episode of Mixtapes with Mike.